Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and uh, open them up to Matthew chapter 2 with me. And this Christmas season, we've been looking at uh, Jesus' birth according to the gospel writer Matthew, and today we'll be in verses 1 through 12. I preached on this sermon actually this week last year, and so some of this may be a little bit familiar to you, but it's always good to be reminded of what God's Word uh, teaches us in regard to Christ. If you don't know me, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I'm the lead pastor here at FAC. Uh, if you are new, I would love to meet you. Uh, if, we, if you aren't new and you've been coming for years and we've never met, I would like to meet you. Uh, I'm usually hanging out up front after service, and uh, we want to be a body of believers that are in community with each other, that know each other, and uh, I recognize that I should take that first step to extend that invitation. And so feel free to just make your way up to the front after service and uh, just say a quick hi, and uh, I'd love to get to know you and your story a little bit better. Um, I think God has great things in store for this church as we head into 2020, and we would love for you to be an active part of that. Uh, Before we begin, a couple of uh, quick announcements by way of a reminder. Uh, First, I just want to extend an invite to you to join us for our Christmas Eve services. They're at 3 and 5 o'clock. Child care for under 24 months will be provided at the 3 o'clock service. And uh, we would love for you to participate in that, be be a part of that. Um, Invite your friends, invite your family members who might not come on a Sunday morning but would come to Christmas Eve. It's a good opportunity. Um, During that service, we will take up what uh, is known as what we've called the Magi offering. This is something we've done for several years. Um, the, the funds from this offering actually go into our benevolence fund, which is used purposefully to bless those in our church family and even in the city of Erie uh, that, that are less fortunate than us. Uh, we use this fund all throughout the year to uh, help those in need. And so obviously there's no obligation to give uh, on Christmas Eve, but we do want you to know that that is available and to be prepared to give should your heart be leading in that way. Uh, we, we, we want you to be ready for that should you desire to give. Um, And then one final reminder, December 29th, we will uh, be going down to just one service for that Sunday. It's our uh, custom here that uh, Sunday in between Christmas and New Year's, we go down to one service. That will be this service, the 1045 service. So if you normally come to the nine o'clock service, be sure to just mark that in your calendar uh, and so you don't show up and there's nobody in in the room yet. So with that, let's go ahead and turn to God's word. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 together. I go ahead and follow along as I read. It says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he'd sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. 
And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray before we begin. And Father, as we look to your word, I pray that we would hear your voice calling out to us. Wherever we're coming from, Lord, wherever life has us right now, uh, let us hear your voice and respond. I pray, Lord, that we can, that, that you, by the power of your Spirit, can remove all obstacles, all distractions, anything that would get in the way of your voice being muffled. Would this be a time that you redeem as we learn about you and are drawn to you through your Son and by the power of your Spirit? Amen. I remember as a child, every year at Christmas time, it was a tradition of my mother's to set up a nativity set that was made out of clay in the living room. I was always fascinated by these little clay figures and the individual detail of each piece. Now, I wasn't allowed to play with them. I don't even think I was allowed to touch them. Um, I wasn't even allowed in the living room. <laughs> but from time to time, being the child, the rebel child that I was, I would kind of look around to make sure nobody was looking. And I would wander into the living room and I would find myself running my fingers through the etchings of each of these little clay figures, the engravings on each of them. And Every year, I was just utterly captivated by this set. And the figures that I was drawn to the most were actually these three wise men that we read about this morning. And I think I was so fascinated by them because they seemed to stick out to me. They seemed so out of place. You have Mary and Joseph clothed in very plain and simple clothes, You have baby Jesus clothed in a simple cloth placed in a simple wooden manger. Even the donkeys and the sheep seem to fit. But then you have these three wise men who were there who wore these extravagant, colorful clothes with gold trim. And they had these really cool crowns on the top of their heads. And they held in their hands these intricate, beautiful gift boxes And it always seemed like they just didn't belong there. Well, in Matthew 2, we're introduced to these wise men. And they're very much shrouded in mystery. Matthew is the only gospel writer that decided to include this story in his account. And so we don't know much about them, but we can recognize that there are several misconceptions about these wise men and who they are. See, I fear that as we uh, are in our own culture, we actually read the text in light of our own culture, in light of our own history, in light of what we feel the nativity scene looks like. Uh, But it's important not to read our context and our culture into the text, but rather identify what their culture and what their context was in, in recognizing that this was written in a very different culture at a very different time. 
And this just goes whenever we approach Scripture, that we have to first understand the text in their own culture before we apply it to our context. We we need to try and read it and study it as if we're the original reader and understand it from their point of view, and then we can apply the principles uh, to our own lives in our modern context. And so let's clear some things up about these wise men that our culture has seemed to embrace that actually isn't necessarily true. The first misunderstanding, the first thing that we know is that they were not there the night that Jesus was born. They weren't a part of the nativity scene, although we put them in there. In verse 2, we see that they claim that they saw his star when it rose. And we get the implication here that this star appeared when Jesus was born. However, we also know that these men are traveling from the east, most likely the Persian region, which was about 900 miles away. This journey would have taken them months on horseback or camelback. Right? To, to put that in perspective, Jacksonville, Florida is actually about 900 miles away, a little more than 900 miles away from Erie. You see how substantial this journey really was and how long it would have taken and uh, would have would have taken and the fact that Jesus was older is actually confirmed later on in chapter two uh, when Herod issues an order in verse sixteen he 's threatened by Jesus as we read, and in verse sixteen he has all the males under the age of two in Bethlehem killed and so herod 's doing the math in his head of when the star appeared. And when the Magi showed up and how long perhaps they've been gone visiting Jesus and he realized that this this child must at the most be two years old. And so there's a very real chance that uh, Jesus was no longer an infant when the wise men showed up, but a toddler. The the text even doesn't, doesn't even refer to Jesus as a baby. It actually refers to him as a child. So that's one misconception. Second, we don't know how many there were. We seem to attach the number three to them because there were three gifts. We know that there were multiple, but it could have been a multitude of wise men. And given the fact that they were coming from so far away, there is a very good chance that they were actually traveling with an entourage. You see, in those days, it was not safe to travel alone or in small numbers. And these guys, as we will see, are very important people in Persia. And so they probably took proper precautions to ensure their safety. And part of that is traveling in a larger number. And so think of this as a larger group of people traveling rather than just three. Those are the two major misunderstandings about these wise men. But we do know historical context and we can unpack what we do know about them. We do know that a better title for them maybe isn't wise men, but magi. This is the Greek word that's used here. And uh, these magi would be leading figures in the king of Persia's royal court. They probably served as religious advisors to the king. And so we know that these wise men are bigwigs, right? They are uh, prominent and important figures in their country because they are brushing shoulders with some of the highest authorities in Persia. In our culture, we have the president, and the president has his his advisors or his cabinet. These are who the wise men are in their context. 
They specialized in both astrology and astronomy, which in those times were closely linked. And they were considered professionals in their field. And so not only were they important and influential, they would have been very smart and very sharp, a very highly educated group of men. However, for the Jewish people, these guys aren't so great. They may be important. They may be influential. They may be educated, but to the Jew, these magi are about as pagan as they come. Because to the Jew, they are dabbling in some pretty dangerous things. You see, their work typically involved various occult practices that would actually include sorcery. It would include their own pagan sacrificial system. And they were especially renowned for being able to interpret dreams through these means to help us understand our word for magic or magical is actually derived from their title, magi. And so Matthew's original Jewish audience would have had a very uncomfortable and uneasy feeling uh, in their gut when they read of these magi coming from the East. It would have been a negative association. But one Jewish philosopher actually referred to magi as vipers and scorpions. That's how they felt about these guys. These were not good guys. If these guys were to stroll into town, uh, into, into Jerusalem, in the Jewish community, they would prefer to keep their distance. These are the type of guys that if you see them coming down the street, you call your kids inside because you don't want your children even around people like that. And so it's remarkable that Matthew, who is a Jewish man, who wrote a gospel from a Jewish perspective for a Jewish audience, would use this story, and not once do we see him paint them in a negative light. Why on earth would he tell this story near the beginning of his gospel? To the Jewish reader, they really didn't belong there. What Matthew is doing is purposeful. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's challenging the prejudice that these Jewish people would have against non-Jewish people, and more specifically against pagans. And we'll see that he's showing that this story about Jesus that he's writing about, the entirety of the gospel message is not confined to merely a religious institution, that it goes beyond a particular place or a particular location or a particular culture. And this would have been a foreign concept to the original reader because to the Jewish people, the only appropriate place for worship was the temple in Jerusalem. That was the only place that you could experience God. Yet here are these men, pagan men, worshiping the Messiah, Jesus who is called the Christ, not in the temple in Jerusalem, but in a stable In Bethlehem, Matthew teaches us here that the power of the gospel is not limited to these four walls. There are no barriers for the message of Jesus Christ. You don't have to come to these four walls to worship King Jesus. Sometimes we worship him where the pagans are. 
That's what one commentator says for this one special event in history. The God who rules the heavens chose to reveal himself where the pagans were looking. And this reminds me of the necessity to preach the gospel to all people from all places because you never know who will respond to Jesus. You never know who is going to respond. Those we least expect may hear God's voice and respond in the most unlikely of places. Even the most pagan of pagans may respond to Jesus given the opportunity, which is what the Magi did. Through this cosmic event of a star appearing in the sky, whether by natural or supernatural efforts, God sought out, called out these magi, and the magi responded. And the magi responded in a way that they traveled all this way for one goal. They had one mission, one thing in mind. We're told in verse 2 that their only mission, the only purpose for them traveling 900 miles was to find the one who was born the king of the Jews and what? Worship him. We need to find the one born of the king of the Jews and we need to worship him. Now this title, King of the Jews, is significant because it would have had some messianic undertones. You walk into Jerusalem and you were to talk about the King of the Jews, they would know that you're talking about the long-awaited Savior. And the Magi would have been familiar with some of these Old Testament prophecies because there were actually Jewish people several centuries before exiled to their region. And while they were able to return to their homeland, several Jewish people actually stayed in the Persian and Babylonian area, and they would have actually had influence on some of the, the uh, religious field at the time. And, and so these magi would be familiar with the Old Testament. They'd be familiar with some of these prophecies. They would be familiar that this king of the Jews was the Messiah that the Jewish people were looking for. And so these men probably assumed that if there was a baby born king of the Jews, he will most likely be in Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the royal city. And so once again, imagine this larger group of unwanted people from the east coming into town and start asking about this new king. They probably didn't go to King Herod first. They probably went around the city and started asking everybody about this, and they probably assumed that this monumental birth would be headline news, that everybody would know about this. This would be major news. And they probably would have been a little shocked and a little disgruntled that they just journeyed 900 miles, and nobody seems to know what they're talking about. They can't really find their answer. And so from Jerusalem's perspective, you have this undesirable group of people from the east, which was always a present threat for them, looking for a new king that they have no knowledge about. And so, of course, the rumor mill is going to fire up. People are going to start talking. It's going to create some waves. And we get the inclination from the text that Herod actually didn't hear about this news directly from the wise men, but just from the rumor mill as people start talking. And so he wants to find out more about this rumor that's going around that there has been a baby born king of the Jews because he is king of the Jews right now. Herod was not Jewish. He ruled over this region, though. 
this area of land where Judah was located was one of many regions that fell to the colossal and ever-expanding empire of Rome. And what the Romans would do is install other figures to rule for them on their behalf in specific regions. And so Herod, having gained prominence with the Romans, ruled this Jewish region under Rome's control at the time. And Herod, because he ruled over this region with a bunch of Jewish people, actually would refer to himself as the king of the Jews. But this is no valid claim to the throne. You see, this was handed to him. This was kingship taken by military force. And there's a stark contrast between Herod, who makes the empty declaration that he's the king of the Jews, and Jesus, who the Magi say is born king of the Jews. Jesus has a legitimate claim to kingship, and Herod's claim is empty. But Herod comes face to face with a political rival, and so he seeks out more information about this infant born king of the Jews. And we're told in verse 4 that he consults with the Jewish chief priests and scribes. Now these guys, the, the chief priests and scribes, they are the main Jewish authority in the region. In this context, these are Jewish leaders who are under Roman law and under Herod's rule, but they did have some political influence. You see, back then, the lines were a little bit more blurred. There was no separation of church and state, so your religious leaders quite often were your political leaders as well. And this role of chief priest in the Old Testament, this office, was a high position among the Israelites that came from the tribe of Levi. God actually ordained this role itself through Moses. But unfortunately, by the time we get to the New Testament, by the time we get to Matthew chapter 2, this role had become nothing more than a corrupt group of religiously oriented politicians. They very much would compromise some of their own convictions in order to fit a political agenda and to hold power. Now, they did know the Old Testament. They were the experts in interpreting the Old Testament. They were familiar with all the prophecies, and they would know everything about this king or this Messiah and what he was supposed to be and who he was. They were so well-versed in the Old Testament prophecies that when Herod inquires about the Christ or the Messiah's birthplace, they knew exactly where he was supposed to be born. Oh, yeah, the Messiah... He's, he's going to be born in Bethlehem, in, in Judah. This was like common knowledge to them. And they quote scripture right off the top of their head. My, Micah 6, 2. That's what this prophecy is. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. And so from this point, Herod summons the wise men. He inquires about, about them. He's talking with them. And he tells the wise men, this is where the king of Jews will be. And then he sends them on their way. Now, Herod has some ulterior motives. We're going to save that for next week. But we come to find in verses 9-11 that the Magi have finally reached their destination. Mission accomplished. They are now worshiping Jesus as an infant king of the Jews. That's the story. That's what it says. 
But why does Matthew include such a strange story in his gospel account? What does he hope to accomplish in including this story that none of the other gospel writers use? Let me remind you that Matthew is a Jewish man writing for a Jewish audience in order to challenge oftentimes the Jewish establishment. The religious elite of the times were the scribes and the priests and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. These religious elites thought that they were the good guys, thought that they were the ones who, because they followed the law, they, they were the righteous ones, right? They, they, would, they would follow the law to a T and then hold everybody else under the oppression of their thumb. They were more concerned with how they looked on the outside than honoring God with their hearts and with their minds and with their bodies. From this, they were a very corrupt bunch that looked very good on the outside, but not so great on the inside. Oftentimes, through his gospel, Matthew would actually take these religious elite people who perceived themselves to be good people, to be the good guys. They thought they were the heroes for following the law and he would unveil them for who they truly were. Matthew would pull back the curtain, so to speak, to reveal that these guys, these religious elites are actually the bad guys who are in active opposition to Jesus, who reject Jesus. Matthew talks about this in, in uh, chapter 23, verse 27. He quotes Jesus. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And this is what he says. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites. You hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. Jesus is saying, you guys clean up real good. And you look really good on the outside, but on the inside, you're dead. Your hearts are dead. And you can fool everybody else. But I see your heart. And you will not fool me. Your heart is rotten. Don't you see? that you are about as far away from righteousness as you possibly can be. And so in our passage today, Matthew is actually setting up a contrast. He's setting up a contrast between the religious elites who are thought to be righteous and the pagan magi who are anything but righteous. And think about this. The chief priests and the scribes receive word that the king of the Jews, the Messiah, has been born. And they know that if this was true, that he would be born in Bethlehem. And they don't do anything. There is a glaring absence from the religious leaders from verses 7 on. I would think that from their perspective, even if this was alleged, that they would be all over that. These guys are informed by Scripture. They have a head knowledge of who the Messiah is. They had more than enough knowledge to recognize him when he came, and they should know how to properly respond, and they don't. 
They have a head knowledge of who he is, but they do not have a heart knowledge because they do not respond. Bethlehem is six miles south of Jerusalem. To put that in perspective, that's like from here at FAC to Presque Isle. That's a couple hours walk for them. And yet you have these pagan magi who journeyed over 900 miles over the course of several months and these religious leaders won't travel six miles for a day. Their awaited Messiah that they've read about and that they've talked about and that they've thought about and that they've prayed for is practically on their doorstep and they miss him. They don't recognize him. They don't know him. Why? Because these religious leaders are too caught up in their self-righteousness to see the need for a savior. They're not looking for the Messiah because they don't think they need one anymore. You would think that these religious leaders would rejoice at the news that their Messiah had been born, but they are turned inward on themselves. They are turned inward on their own stuff and we come to find that they are distracted and their distraction has produced in them a spirit of apathy, a spirit of indifference. They don't care. And there is a fine line, a very thin line between indifference and hostility. Later on in Matthew's gospel, this legacy of indifference is actually passed down to the next generation of priests and scribes. And it's these very apathetic, indifferent priests and scribes that end up calling for Jesus's life on the cross. I've heard that indifference is merely hostility delayed. A spirit of indifference and apathy produced the fruit of hostility. And so I have to ask the question, are you apathetic to Jesus? Do you sit here and just say, I just don't care? Because eventually that will lead to hostility towards him. That will lead to hostility towards him. Because you have a low view of Jesus. If you have a low view of Jesus, it will produce in you hostility towards him. A.W. Tozer, he's a famous alliance pastor from uh, the mid-1900s, wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. And at the very beginning of the book, in the preface, he writes, the low view of God, entertained almost universally, is the cause of hundreds of lesser evils everywhere among us. The low view of God entertained almost universally is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. Tozer claims that every bit of evil among us and in us is caused because we have a low view of God. Because we are apathetic and indifferent towards Jesus. And we have a weak view of God because we have a very high view of ourselves. We have a very high view of ourselves. My heart is turned inward once again. My my concern is with my things, in my schedule, in my life, in my self-righteousness, and I don't have any room left for Jesus. In our apathy and indifference, we couldn't care less about who Jesus is and what he came here to do. We looked at that last week. 
right? Who, who is Jesus? And what did he come to do? And I fear that you may have sat here and you may have heard that and you may have seen that in your word and you can still sit there at the end of our time together and say, who cares? Who cares? That is apathy to its highest degree. However, God has bursted through to get our attention, to wake us up. When Jesus was born as a baby, we see that God is dramatically and passionately and radically pursuing us, and it demands a response. It demands a response. And so in our apathy and in our indifference and in our high view of ourselves, we are unable to pursue God because we are wretched sinners. So instead of us pursuing God, God pursues us. He calls us. He draws us to him. This is a biblical truth that he pursues that which is lost, us. In Luke 19.10, Jesus elaborates on his mission. We heard about his mission last week, right? And what is his mission? To save sinners. What does Jesus say in Luke 19.10? He says, the son of man came to seek and save the lost, Jesus, how will you save the lost? By seeking them out, by looking for them, because they're lost. They're lost, and I need to find them. This is why he leaves the 99 sheep in the parable to pursue the one, because it's lost. When my wife and I were married, we took our honeymoon to Disney World. We love Disney. And... In the Magic Kingdom, they have parades every day, like multiple times a day. And if you're familiar with the Magic Kingdom, what will happen with these parades is Main Street, the main road leading from the entrance up to the castle, will completely clear out and make room for the parade. And so what you have is Main Street is completely empty, but there are literally thousands of people lined on the sidewalks anticipating the parade. And so on our honeymoon, we're uh, awaiting, anticipating the parade to come down Main Street. It's completely empty. And then all of a sudden, I see a husband and a wife frantically running up and down Main Street, looking for their lost daughter. And they're just screaming and shouting, has anybody seen a little girl? Has anybody seen her? She's lost. And she, they'd start screaming. At her. She's like six years old. She has her face painted. She's got a pink dress. We need to find our lost little girl. And they are running up and down the street, passionately, enthusiastically looking for their precious child who is lost. And would you know it, just a few moments later, I look to my right, and there's a little girl with a painted face, in a pink dress, just strolling down the sidewalk <laughs> without a care in the world because she doesn't even know that she's lost. Somebody shouts out to the parents, hey, she's over here. And then everybody starts shouting to get the parents' attention that are way down there. And I have never seen a father run so fast as this dad as he just darts down Main Street. And he jumps over like three or four rows of people to get to his daughter. And when they meet, he embraces her with a hug because what was lost has now been found. God pursues you because you are lost in your sin 
even if you don't know it. He is pursuing you constantly. And this is most clearly demonstrated in Jesus. When Jesus, who is God and has been God for all eternity, stepped down from the luxury and the glory of heaven to come and meet us where we are as a human infant, In the most vulnerable situation, he came 100% of the way to get us so that he could serve as a mediator between us and God the Father. When Jesus came, he came on a mission to pursue us. He didn't sit in the glory of heaven and say, I'll meet you halfway, because he knew that we were incapable of that. So instead, he comes 100% of the way and he died on the cross so that we may be made right with God. So that we may be embraced by God and welcomed into the family. God continues to seek and save the lost even today. Perhaps in this moment, he is calling out to you. Perhaps he is seeking you out and calling out to you to respond. In our text that we looked at today, God called these men in Jerusalem, these priests, these scribes, these religious elite, he called them through the prophets. He called them and pursued them through their heritage. He called them even through their family line. God sought out these men profoundly and intentionally, and they don't respond. They show contempt for the king. Yet God calls out these pagan magi, through a brief cosmological event, a star in the sky, and they do respond. They hear God's voice in the slightest of ways, and they are drawn to King Jesus and worship him. So if this is your moment where you hear God's voice, even if you've attended church your entire life, I'm telling you that that doesn't matter. What I'm telling you is that if you hear God's voice in this moment, would you respond to him and submit to Jesus as Lord and Savior? The Magi probably didn't fully understand the implications of their worship, but they do know that there's something different about this baby. They responded to God's voice and you see them rejoice exceedingly with great joy. You see them fall prostrate, bowing down and respecting and worshiping Jesus. You see them bear gifts, luxury gifts fit for a king. In this moment, their adoration, their submission, the true center of their attention is not on anything they've done, but it is on King Jesus. Jesus, even in his infancy, must be the true object of our affection and worship. No matter where we come from, no matter how far from God we truly are, we have been called to make Jesus the object of our devotion, the object of our adoration, the object of our worship. 
And so the question I leave you with is this. Do you adore Jesus? Do you recognize the glory of his majesty? Do you treat him like the king he is and give him the honor due his name? Or are you caught in the web of your own selfishness and sinfulness and pride, which leaves us apathetic to the name of Jesus? Let's pray. Lord, you tell us in your word that there will be people that say, Lord, Lord, and you will respond that you didn't know us. I pray, Father, that we would not be fooled by our church attendance, by our own self-righteousness, by our own goodness, if you will, Father, but would we just embrace the gospel of grace through Jesus Christ. We, we thank you for your forgiveness, Lord. We are sinners and we are separated from you. And our sin has caused us to, to have a very low view of who you are. And through this, Lord, we've become apathetic in many ways and we've become indifferent in many ways to who Jesus is and what he came to do, Father. And so I ask first that you would forgive us of that and then would you draw us to, to your son. By the power of your Holy Spirit, Father, would you draw us to know you and love you and adore you. I pray, Father, as we close our time in worship today, uh, that you would, you would bring us back so that we may worship you together as a body. But even as we go, we would worship uh, the name of Jesus individually, especially as we go into the Christmas season. I pray, Father, even as we give our offerings and our tithes, uh, that this would be an act of worship, Father. I think about the Magi and how they offered gifts to, to Jesus as a way of worshiping him, Father. We look at this the same way. And so, Lord, would we be good stewards and wise with the resources that you are entrusting us as a body? And would these uh, be blessed? Would these be used, these resources, to make Jesus' name known and make it great? And in your holy name I pray, amen.